We turn in our Bible then to the book of Job and chapters 1 and 2 as we come to consider when the righteous suffer. These two chapters are the prologue uh, to the, the book of Job, as I'm sure you know. The spectacular fall from power, position of authority of a rich and famous person doesn't happen every day, every month, every week, or every year. And when it does happen, we should probably sit up and take note In the blink of an eye, we have seen the Chancellor deposed from his position and replaced. Confident, assured that he would continue in his position one day, and yet the next day, deposed from that seat of power, influence, and fame. As we reflect on his changed circumstances, We get insight into Job's experience, his fall, his rejection, his suffering. He's described in verse 3 as the greatest of all the people of the East. A man of influence, a man of power, a household name within his community and time. And yet he falls to the very depths despised, rejected, sidelined, tormented. We'll see beyond Job to the Lord Jesus Christ coming down from the glory and heights of heaven to the very depths of rejection, humiliation, and loss. The book of Job is a fascinating book in the Bible and I hope as we spend these three weeks in the book of Job you will be gripped by its story, by its insights, by its teaching. I hope we'll be enthralled by the unfolding of the message and the lessons encountered here. Literary critics have praised uh, this book in the Bible. Thomas Carlyle, for example, says there is nothing written, I think, in the Bible or out of it of equal literary merit. Alfred Tennyson was also captivated with the book of Job. He described it as the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. In our studies of the book of Job, we'll follow the the literary outline of the book. And chapters 1 and 2 then are the first section in the book of Job, describing the prologue, the preface to the book. There are three lessons among many lessons in these opening chapters, which we want to highlight this morning. The first lesson which rises out of these chapters and grips us is that the godly suffer in this world. Let's take a moment just to establish the godliness of Job as described here. How godly was this man? In chapter 1 and verse 1 we we have these four phrases which describe his godliness. He was blameless, that is, morally. He was upright, 
straight living in God's way. He feared God, this source of wisdom. He turned away from evil. What a group of statements about the piety of this man. And it's God's assessment often that we have in verse number 8. The very same terms are used of Job by God. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns from evil. In the book of Ezekiel in chapter 14, the the writer there is describing the, the outstandingly pious people in Israel's history. And he mentions Noah. And he mentions Daniel. And he also mentions in Ezekiel 14 verse 14, Job. Here is a man whose godliness was outstanding. He had a position of honor within his community as a judge, as a counselor. He was well known well respected for his uprightness and piety. But it's this man, this outstandingly godly man, who is brought to the very depths of suffering. And there's two phases to his suffering. In the first phase, he loses his possessions And his family in chapter 1, the Sabaeans, fire, the Chaldeans, wind, bring the wealth of this man of Arabia, living in Abraham and Isaac's time, most likely, to an end. He had 7,000 sheep for clothes, 3,000 camels for milk, 1,000 oxen for plowing, 500 donkeys for transport. But all of it is taken away. He had seven sons. He had three daughters. A sign in the Old Testament of God's blessing on him. But he loses it all in a short space of time. But phase two of his suffering in the, in the second chapter is his health in verse 7. His illness, some skin disease, smallpox or elephantiasis, with symptoms noted in the book as inflammation, ulceration, itching, loss of appetite. The godly suffer in this world. A few years ago in England, the doctors voted to stop doing home visits. And there has been outrage ever since. Doctor calling at someone's home is expected. Isn't this part of their role? Isn't this something which, there's something wrong about this? That the doctor not calling with someone who is unwell in their house. And it's this clash that we encounter in these opening chapters of the book of Job that here is someone of outstanding piety. And yet here is someone of outstanding suffering. 
Because in our heads and in our hearts, we think, don't we, at the very essence and root of our being, that a good Christian should not suffer. We think that big suffering means big sinning. We wonder, perhaps silently and secretly, what has that person done that they are suffering so much? Surely there's some secret hidden sin in their life. But the book of Job will teach us that the most godly, the most upright, Someone who can be described not only by his community but by God as blameless can experience the most outstanding and excruciating of suffering. The godly suffer in this world. And we we think of Christ and the suffering that he experienced. But secondly, sufferers don't always know why. Sufferers don't always know why. Now in chapters 1 and 2, in verse 6 of chapter 1 and in verse 1 of chapter 2, we're taken beyond the, the, the land of us, probably the southwest Jordan, the southern Edom down, down there near Egypt was probably where us was. But, but we are taken away from that town, that city, and we are taken into heaven. And what's going on in the background in verse 6 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2? The sons of God, the unfallen angels, it seems, are appearing before God, reporting on their work and ministry in the earth. And among them, there is Satan. And God initiates this whole process This whole test, he says in verse 8, have you considered the faithfulness of my servant Job? Now at the time, Job had no idea of this discussion in heaven, of God's reason for his suffering. But perhaps it seems he was given this insight There's much discussion on who wrote the book of Job. Was it Solomon? Was it Moses? But the best suggestion is it was Job. Chapter 42 and verse 16 indicates that he lived for another 140 years after his trial. And it's likely that in those 140 years, God revealed to him the contents of this book and the Spirit inspired him to write this book and he was given this insight in chapters 1 and 2 that the reader is given right at the very beginning. Here is God organizing this test for his servant. So what is the reason for Job's suffering? It's not to punish him for some sin, but it's to silence Satan by showing the veracity and integrity of his servant. 
The debate is, Satan's claim is, Job worships you because of the wealth you give him. Take away his wealth and his worship will go as well. And God takes Satan on and says, I will prove you wrong. That there is a real work of grace in my servant. And that my strength is greater than any affliction that this world can bring. God is showing that Job is pure gold. He will allow him to go down into this incredibly heated furnace of affliction and bring him through this to show to Satan and to us that where God's work of grace is in the heart of any human, affliction will not break that commitment to God. Surely Satan was surprised when Job says in chapter 1 and verse 21, having lost his family and possessions, blessed be the name of the Lord. On one occasion when Ruth and I were watching a bit of the celebrity jungle uh, and they sat down to this outrageous dinner and I, I said to her, why? Why would they put themselves through that? And, and her answer was, it's the money. And this is what Satan's saying to God. It's the money, God. That's what Job's in it for. It's all about the money. God's saying to us and saying to Job and saying to Satan, I'm going to prove you wrong. Take away his wealth, his family, his health. And you will see a man in whom the strength of Christ enables to go on. And what a book it is, isn't it? In a lot of ways, Job is faceless. We struggle to know when he lived. We struggle to know where he lived. We struggle to know how he lived. And that's brilliant. Because you and I can then read our story into this book. You and I can become Job. In qualitative research, you have to describe in great detail the situation of the participants, their age their gender, their color, their culture. And the whole purpose is that someone reading your work will be able to see whether they can use your research in their situation. You have to describe in great detail the situation of the participants to see if there's any transference of the data into other situations. But here, we don't have that background. To allow you and I to become Job and to enter his experience and to see that our suffering, our loss, our grief in business and health and family is not a punishment from God, 
but a test from God of our faith. That our piety is not, t- is not tied to pounds. That our godliness is not linked to gains. That we love Christ simply and solely because he loved us and gave himself for us. Sufferers don't always know why. And lastly, God's grace triumphs in suffering is another strand that emerges uh, from these chapters and, and from the book. God's grace is seen in the surprising behavior of Job after phase one and phase two of his trials. He expresses his devotion to God. We have it at the end of chapter one, don't we? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have it in chapter two. Shall we receive, verse 10, good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Here is a man in the depths of affliction, a man who's tearing his garments at the end of chapter 1, an outward expression of the, the heart tearing within him. And yet he acknowledges the sovereignty, the wisdom, the power of God. The grace of God sustains in suffering. When Finlay Woodward won the, the junior bake-off, he, he said that his legs turned to jelly. He described the exhausting, dementing, challenging experience of the whole process. But he says, I knew that my school teachers were with me every step. And here is Job, and he's experiencing this immense trial. But we see the grace of God in him. He's not speaking like an ordinary man. He's not speaking as his wife would want him to speak. He's not reacting as Satan thought he would react. The grace of God is there for him and for us and for Christ in the very depths of trial. One of the key words in the book of Job is comfort. And we'll see see a bit of this about his friends. They can't provide him comfort. And even God in his thinking throughout the process seems distant and working in ways that he cannot understand. He's not finding comfort from God. He seems to be against him. But in chapter 42, verse 6, the last chapter, Job says eventually, after all the turmoil, I am comforted. And what brings him to that point? What elicits that confession and acknowledgement of his experience right at the very end? Is that he sees God. And he recognizes that God has been working all the time and has been with him every step of his challenge. Suffering, the righteous suffer. 
And for us all, it's a good lesson to remind ourselves that when life doesn't turn out as we expect or, or want or think, we think of Job. We think of Jesus. We think of others whom we know who have experienced opposition and persecution, who were pious, godly, outstandingly committed to Christ. The godly suffer in this world. And sometimes they don't know why. One of the hardest things for some people who have experienced bereavement or loss of business or loss of health is why? Why have you done this? One of the striking things that we encounter as we study the book of Job is that at the very end, God says about Job, he has spoken of me the thing that is right. And all his questions, and all his wondering, and all his confusion, and all the obscurity and loneliness of his experience, God was gentle. God was kind. God was compassionate. In our affliction, we speak, we question, we ask, we suffer, we cry out. But our God is gentle, caring near us. And lastly, the grace that's given to him to endure it is very evident throughout this book. He perseveres, albeit in his struggles and in his questions and in his wondering. Grace is given to him to go on. That great assertion of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Perhaps you reflect on your weakness. And consider that you have never spoken in tongues. You have never performed a miracle. There seems to be no great evidence of the power of God in your Christian experience. And yet, you are here today. You've sunk to the very depths of suffering. You bear the scars of your loss upon you. And you are here to worship and praise and honor the God of heaven and evidence of the grace of Christ upon you.